Greetings and welcome on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute. My name is Michael Le Chevalier. I'm associate director here, um, and it's a deep pleasure to be welcoming you back here for this very special event, um, unpacking uh, Pope Francis's latest encyclical, Fratelli Tutsi. Today's event is co-sponsored by the Institute for Human Ecology at Catholic University of America and America Media. They each play a critical role in ensuring the success of this event, and for their help, we are grateful. Now, throughout COVID, we've each had this strange experience of meeting our neighbor, our family, our loved ones, uh, all mediated through the technology of things like Zoom. Um, our ability to be um, encountering people face-to-face -face has been hindered in this time. Oddly enough, this actually echoes what we're experiencing in the, what we're reading within this encyclical um, that many of you have come here to um, see excavated today. Pope Francis raises the challenging task for uh, each of us, inviting us to bring the love of neighbor um, that is modeled in the gospel of narrative of the Good Samaritan to our political institutions, our social institutions, and even to that broad institution of the human family. To help us unpack the challenge that's presented in this encyclical, um, and to raise questions around it is a fantastic panel. Um, and to help moderate this, today's discussion is Professor Jennifer Frey, a longtime friend of Lumen Christi, um, who uh, also once worked here uh, in the role of assistant director. Um, so I have big shoes to fill. Um, Jen, I'm gonna hand it over to you um, and let you take forward the conversation today. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Um, and good evening to everyone. I am really delighted to be with you this evening to host this discussion of Pope Francis's latest encyclical Fratelli Tutti around social friendship. Joining me for this conversation are two scholars who are eminently qualified to help us interpret and reach a deeper understanding of this important papal document. We have Joe Capizzi and Russ Hindinger with us. Joe Capizzi is Ordinary Professor of Moral Theology at the Catholic University of America, where he is also the Executive Director of the Institute for Human Ecology. He teaches in the areas of social and political theology. He received his BA from the University of Virginia, a Master's in Theological Studies from Emory, and both an MA and a PhD in Theology from the University of Notre Dame. And also joining us is Russ Hintinger, who is a senior fellow at the Lumen Christi Institute, a visiting professor at the University of Chicago Law School and professor emeritus of Catholic studies and law at the University of Tulsa. He's also ordinarius of the Pontifical Academy of the Social Sciences and the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas. So hi Russ, hi Joe, thank you so much for being here. Hi Jennifer. Um, Russ, I'd like to start with you and invite you to kind of help us situate this encyclical. This is obviously Pope Francis's second encyclical letter. It's coming five years after Laudato Si. So I just wanna ask, how do these two letters compare and contrast? And also how does Pope Francis differ both in style and in substance from his predecessor, Benedict XVI? And how much of this contrast is due to the Pope's specific Jesuit spirituality and formation? Hi, Jen. Hi, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> and so, 
Do you want me to? Do you want me to? Uh... Yeah, maybe we'll and maybe we'll let Russ figure that out. I'm sorry about that. Um, and we'll we'll just come back to this question about situating the encyclical. Um, and Joe, I'll just skip to my question for you, which is why is the Pope writing about social friendship right now? Why do you think this? Um, what do you think is the perceived urgency of this particular theme? And what do you think are the main points that he's trying to get across in this encyclical? Well, I think he outlines um, a couple of issues of urgency right at the start of the encyclical, right? Um, he identifies for us at least a few things that I think are provoking him to interject right now. And I, I think even that provoked him to interject uh, in this moment, uh, you know, almost with this sense of kind of rushing in to say something. Number one is uh, a deep awareness of divisiveness uh, that he's identifying in, in societies around us, right? There's all kinds of divisions that he identifies. Um, he uses the language of openness and closed, right? There's, um, there's a lot of closing of things that I think he, he and perhaps the church herself were anticipating that would be you know, increasingly open over time. And instead, what we're seeing is a kind of closing of these things. So there's divisions that are emerging and are getting deeper, divisions that are being expressed in part in terms of doctrine, right? So he's got this um, you know, concern about how doctrine is being used by people to express certain kinds of false ideologies that themselves divide. And then uh, another thing that he identifies, I think, is uh, the rise of populism and associated nationalisms, right? Um, I think in the first couple of paragraphs, he uses uh, the term nationalism at least twice. Uh, and so clearly what, he, what he's concerned about is the church's message is not a message that is conducive to certain versions of populism, certain versions of division. Uh, and I think he recognizes this is a moment for somebody on behalf of the church to be emphatic uh, about trying to resist these trends of division um, to turn back this tide towards increasing closing, closing towards a kind of openness that he's later going to sort of explain in terms of social friendship, right? This language of social friendship, um, he's going to expand into a language that is increasingly capacious, increasingly uh, um, uh, innovative in the ways it can extend itself to people that we don't often think of as friends to us. What do you think is kind of his, I mean, do you think he gives us a diagnosis of why things are so divisive right now? I mean, he mentions things like new technologies, new forms of media, um, but is, is there something other than that, do you think? He does identify some things. Um, I, don't, I don't know that, it, you know, you, you'd claim it's a kind of full diagnosis, but certainly he, he points to some things. Social media is something that he's been concerned about and he's spoken about in other contexts and he repeats um, in this context as well. I think he sees a kind of dis debasement and coarsening of political language. Um, so one of the things that he, that he uh, emphasizes a couple of places in the encyclical is the, the noble ideal of politics, right? Politics done well politics that he places in the context of love, for instance, right? Um, and where he sees that the job of a politician, um, which again, he extols, is a job that he thinks ought to be pursuing goods that are greater than the ones that currently uh, are tempting people. So he, he does identify certain trends that I think 
could serve as a kind of complete diagnosis, uh, but I, I wouldn't call it a complete one. Okay, Russ, are you are you back with us? Um, let's see. It sounds like it sounds to me. That sounds good to me. Yeah. Okay. Glad to have you back. So I'm I'm going to pretend now that I'm and then I'm starting out this question uh, with you. And again, just invite you to help us to situate this encyclical. It's his second encyclical letter. It's coming five years after Laudato C. Um, and again, I'm just wondering how the letters compare and contrast, and also how Pope Francis differs in style and substance from Benedict XVI, and also how much of those differences are due to his specific uh, Jesuit spiritual formation and practice. Well, I'll start at the beginning, see how far I can get. Okay. Um, yes, two encyclicals under his name. The first encyclical he issued was written by Benedict, but Laudato Si in 2015 and now, uh, Fratelli in uh, the summer. Hmm. By the way, so far as I know, going back to 1740, I have the Bologna and Caridian of every single encyclical, 13 volumes of these things. These are the only two encyclicals in the modern history of the Catholic Church that are not addressed to anyone. Yeah. They're not addressed to patriarchs or to bishops or to the lay faithful. They're not even formally addressed to, to uh, persons of goodwill. Why that's so, I don't know. Francis is always shaking up uh, the usual formats and styles. But a, a very brief, brief contrast between the first encyclical and the second. By the way, they both have to do with global matters. But I think they couldn't be more different from my own point of view. Uh, in Laudato Si, he claimed there are not, there is not one but two crises. One would be the climatological crisis, right. environmental crisis. The second is the anthropological crisis. That is the way we live, right? And these two crises are joined at the hip. It's not just climatology, it's not just ethics, it's both. And uh, the encyclical turned out to be a tour de force. I think I can say without exaggeration that certainly no Pope, I don't think any curial office had attempted on this topic anything so sweeping and complex. Uh, begins with St. Francis's Canticle uh, of the Creatures through about 45,000 words. He moves through different dimensions of the issue often circling back, circling deeper. By the way, meticulous use of footnotes, footnotes to scripture, church fathers, medieval philosophers and theologians, Carmelite mystics, scientists, bishops conferences around the world. And it ends in a beautiful prayer to the second person of the Trinity, to Christ as eternal logos and savior. I say it, it's, it's a tour de force. It's incredibly synthetic. And I would call it uh, even contemplative. So on that note, Fratelli Tutti is anything but contemplative. It's, it's urgent. It's, it's a call to action. It too begins with a quotation from St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, and it too moves through about 45,000 words. 
but almost no philosophy or theology in this encyclical, almost none. Uh, these cupboards are pretty bare so that if what keeps you turning pages is philosophy and theology, you're going to be disappointed. Of the 288 footnotes, 173 are to himself. It, it, it is, it's the obverse, the complete opposite of what he did in Laudato Si. So he's clearly up to something different because it's the same Francis doing both. And I think the, the point of this encyclical is not to do doctrine, not to do analysis, not to do definitions, uh, not to persuade by dialectic, but to persuade with an urgent voice. Uh, another reason why it may, the cupboards might be bare on theology in this encyclical is that this encyclical uh, flowed from his joint work with the chief imam of the United Arab Emirates. So whereas Laudato Si was done in conjunction with the ecumenical patriarch, it was much more theological. This was done with, with a imam. And so that put some limits perhaps on it. Uh, but uh, this thing begins urgently and ends urgently. He wants at the end of this encyclical for you to sign up after doing a discernment and a discernment of spirits about where you stand on these things. And I suppose that's the Ignatian motif. Yeah, I mean, it kind of comes back to the fact that the, you know, encyclical letter isn't really addressed to anyone, but a, a theme throughout seems to be that it's kind of addressed to everyone uh, in, in the sense that he, he really seems to kind of shy away in certain respects from bringing in specifically Christian commitments um, as if that might alienate some potential recipient of the letter. Um, and that kind of, I mean, that, that was something that certainly stood out to me. Um, but, I, but I'm wondering, um, you know, he talks obviously a lot in the cyclical about fraternity and solidarity. Um, and it's not really clear to me how fraternity and solidarity are precisely related. As you said, you know, theologically and philosophically, there's not that much there, but I think we need to have some, <laughs> some kind of sense of Francis's talk of fraternity and the emphasis on fraternity as opposed to the more familiar concept from Catholic social teaching uh, which is solidarity. Um, you know, I'm just wondering, Russ, what you make of that difference. Is the difference really philosophical and theological, or is it more rhetorical and political? Um, and, and do you think that there's a benefit from emphasizing fraternity specifically, as opposed to solidarity? Okay. Uh, the Catholic Church historically had an allergic reaction to both of these words because uh, fraternity was part of the slogan of 1789, liberty, equality, and fraternity. And the Pope uh, Pius VII, uh, at the time of the revolution, was Archbishop of Imola in Italy, and he put on a stationary, uh, liberty, equality, and peace in our Lord Jesus Christ. Fraternity was the fighting issue with the church because the church regarded fraternity 
as a, an attempted monopoly on friendship and social life. That the only kind of social life that's normative is civic social life as presented by the French Revolution. So for two centuries, you hardly ever hear in this encyclical tradition, any reference to fraternity. We know why. I mean, there was a historical context for that. Nor was there much reference to solidarity until John the 23rd, because that also had a strange history having to do with revolutions, uh, with socialism, with international workers' movements, all sorts of things. But John the 23rd started using the term solidarity. And John Paul II picked it up and, and ran with it. And the question was, I was there when, when Pope Francis said he wants to dump solidarity and install fraternity. And uh, he thought solidarity kept people too distant. And uh, this was at the, the Academy of Social Sciences. And I just went through the texts and discovered there's not a dime's worth of difference in these two terms. If you look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Compendium of Social Doctrine, what popes have said, oh, for example, in Sentencing with Honest, John, John Paul II says, what we nowadays call the principle of the virtue of solidarity is clearly to be seen in the fundamental pr principles of the Christian view of social and political organization the principles frequently stated by Leo XIII, who uses the term friendship, something already found in Greek philosophy. Pope Pius XI refers to it with the equally meaningful term social charity. Pope Paul VI, expanding the concept to cover many modern aspects of the social question, speaks of a civilization of love. And if you go through here and try to find all of the meanings of fraternity that Francis introduces here, and all the meetings of solidarity, it's the same thing. They're just using, they're using different words. So in answer to your question, it's rhetorical. It, it suits a rhetorical purpose. But the key thing though, is that solidarity has been installed as one of the four major principles of Catholic social doctrine. Mm -hmm. So it would be helpful to be clear and consistent about that. It's best that there not be three names for it. Can right. I, can, I, can I interject here real quick, Jennifer? Yeah. 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 So, so, so why not draw what seems to be the obvious conclusion, conclusion, Ross, then that what, what Pope Francis may be doing is trying to reclaim, um, in essence, an older language and maybe even a more familiar language, the language of fraternity, um, you know, from, you know, the, from its association with the revolution and, you know, it, it's bad association. Uh, and reclaim it as a as a term that, in a way, is a much uh, it's a much more accessible term to most people than solidarity is. Uh, and so, I mean, like, I've always um, had had a kind of hesitation about the language of solidarity, in part because this notion of naming a new virtue um, always struck me as kind of strange. It, it was never clear to me analytically where the virtue of solidarity sort of fits in. What absence in you know sort of classical conceptions of the, you know, the, the four cardinal virtues and the theological virtues, the, the virtue of solidarity was supposed to be naming, um, where fraternity and friendship, um, as it's used rhetorically, at least, 
seems so much more accessible, so much more familiar, and perhaps even more ancient uh, than language of solidarity. Well, yeah, oh. so it could, be, it, could, it could be a kind of reclaiming, but also if it's just a rhetorical move, I think there is a, there are connotations of intimacy um, with fraternity that perhaps aren't there with solidarity. There are also connotations that go straight to John Belushi on this kind of thing. So, I mean, you know, it's a mixed bag. I mean, well, that's <laughs> sorry, but- uh, In American context, yes. That's well, very true. Listen, I think John Belushi is well known in Italy and everywhere else for that movie. But uh, the, uh, where I think solidarity is appropriate here is that the whole encyclical begins with Francis's, uh, St. Francis, ad admonition to his brothers to uh, be one with their absent brothers. By the way, it comes right out of the rule of Benedict too. The, the, the Benedictines always pray for their absent brothers and call them to mind. And solidarity does have at least one aspect of being in union with someone from afar. Mm -hmm. And it, when we start talking globally, and this, this encyclical has a lot to do with the global situation. Uh, well, solidarity sounds like a good word to me. It, it rings true of being in union, being in the same boat with someone else from afar. Uh, you, use, you usually wouldn't say to your spouse, I'm in solidarity with you. True. Well, <laughs> well but, 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 so they're, 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 right. So I, I think the rhetorical thing, um, we don't want to dismiss things because they're rhetorical, right? Rhetorical changes are often important changes, right? And I think, Jennifer, you were kind of getting at it, that there are certain kinds of connotations that come along with these things. I, I just want to add something that sort of counts against it and I think counts for it. One is the notion of the brotherhood of all men, right? Um, which seems like language is very close to fratern for, you know, the fraternity, right? Um, is a language that is quite accessible uh, to people that they understand very well. In solidarity, you have to explain to people, this is what I'm getting at when I talk about, you know, what solidarity entails. On the other hand, right, what, one of the things that we saw was fraternity is also gendered language. And one of the initial reactions, at least in the English language press, was precisely to why is the Pope using um, a term like fratelli, right, or terms like, you know, uh, fraternity, right, fraternal, which are gendered. So um, there are ways in which, right, the language change, you know, is important. It's more than merely, um, uh, you know, more than something you just dismiss as simply a rhetorical uh, move. I think there are things that are being gotten at um, that, will, that will all see sort of shake out probably over time. Yeah, so I wanna move on to the next question just in the interest of time. And this one is for you, Joe. Um, so there are a lot of very specific issues um, that the Pope addresses in this encyclical war, capital punishment, private property, global capitalism. <clears throat> right. I'm just wondering why this cluster of issues and how does the concept of social friendship or maybe you know fraternity help us to think about them in a different or perhaps more systematic way? Yeah, so I, I think this goes right back to the, the issue of urgency, right? So um, if you think of the urgency that Russ and I both note that seems to be a characteristic of the encyclical, 
among the things um, that are animating the rise of populism to which the Pope is responding here, um, that are animating the emergence of nationalisms, uh, right, that, to which again, the Pope is responsive, uh, responding here, are kind of gross inequalities um, in economic uh, distributions, both internal to countries and among countries, and also questions of immigration, right, which we know are of particular concern um, to uh, Pope Francis, right? So there are these topical issues that are deeply connected to the things he identifies as causes for his concern, causes for the darkening clouds, the closing that he sees um, throughout the world and to which he wants to call our attention by saying, look, we need to reopen. Um, these really ought to be seen instead as causes of division among us, but opportunities for people to reach out out of their own wealth, out of their own um, comfort, out of their own stability to those who don't experience wealth, who experience poverty, who experience discomfort, and who experience political instability, right? So I think there's a really close connection of the kinds of issues that he identifies with the animating urgencies of the encyclical uh, itself. Well, so I just, I guess I just want to focus in on maybe one of them. And sure. I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to reach for private property because that's gotten a lot of buzz, uh, especially on, on social media. Um, and a lot of people are asking the question, um, is what he's, is, is what he says about private property, is it out of joint with tradition? Or is he just reconnecting us with strands of the tradition that maybe we've been downplaying or, or overlooking. I mean, I, I think we should maybe just talk about the private property stuff. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, and I think Russ and I could both, um, you know, take a couple of whacks at this. I, one of the first things I think to notice about people's reactions is, confirms in essence, Pope Francis's concern, right? He's concerned that people are closed. And in at least on social media, what I saw from a lot of people reacting to this encyclical, both for it and against it, were people basically close-minded, reading what Pope Francis wrote as confirmations of either their suspicions about Pope Francis or their affirmations of Pope Francis, rather than letting you know the sort of teaching sink in, being open to it as a learning opportunity and so on, right? So um, I saw plenty of people pitting the tradition against itself. Pope Francis is affirming, you know, the, the, the social uses of private property uh, or property, excuse me, as the first, you know, order, the first intention of private property. And this is undoing the economic liberalism that Pope Leo XIII backed into um, and Rerum Navarum and so on. So like, right, this kind of pitting of the tradition against itself, which I think is completely inapt as a way of reading and receiving um, traditional teaching of our magisterium, of the Holy Fathers, uh, and, and does a, a total disservice um, to the ways in which encyclicals are trying to teach us in historical moments, right, with emphases that are appropriate to the historical moments, um, and through which we can begin to see the richness of our tradition on questions of private property. So I just wanted to get that, I mean, you can tell I'm kind of like ranting a little bit. I wanted to get that out there um, as I think the, the way to begin to think about questions of property um, and even the other kinds of um, topical teachings that Pope Francis presents in this. Russ, you want to say something about private property um, as well? Or, well, or listen, I agree that uh, in the Catholic tradition, 
uh, although there have been many, many debates about this, really sure. serious debates in our history. The whole poverty question with the Franciscans and, and Dominicans. Uh, but we have generally recognized some distinction between private use and private possession. Right. And that uh, the first intention, to use your term, which I think is a good one, the first intention of property, remember it comes from the word proprium, propriety, what is yours, what is someone else's, is, um, has a social destination to it. And that, uh, that, that's the argument, by the way, of Rerum Novarum. It has a social destination. Right. And that when the worker receives the wage, it's not just a commutation. It's also a facilitating of that family and so on and so forth. The social intention of property is there from the outset. That's pretty firm in the Catholic tradition. And that uh, by, by customs and by laws over history, human beings have discovered that this is a good system to have some private use, even if it's a kind of possession that uh, is kind of like a permanent usufruct, something to be used. And you don't have it day by day, you have it for longer term than that, because it tends to enhance the social destination. Uh, it's more productive, or people can be more providential with their property with regard to families and larger communities. And this came in not strictly by natural law, but by human moral uh, attention to what that first intention is. And I think Francis is correct on that. That's the old tradition. Once you back up into it, of course, there are many, many debates about what even use means, right? And for what period of time and so on and so forth. And, I, and just to be clear, I mean, I don't really see Francis as entering into those more specific debates in this encyclical, unless I'm missing something, is he? No, he's not, right? Um, part of what he's concerned about um, is what he names as economic neoliberalism, right? He calls it neoliberalism at least a couple times in the encyclical, and he's concerned that there are conceptions of private property that appear to be inattentive to the social purpose, purpose of private property, to this idea that, um, as Russ just described, that um, the, the first intention of property is a social one. And there may be times, and Francis says this, where out of need, people have certain kinds of claims on property that is technically not in their possession, but is in the possession of somebody else. And I think Francis quotes, uh, maybe himself at this point, those who are detaining the property that actually belongs to those persons in need. And again, he, he connects this, not merely to questions of like, what you might think of as a disposable property, right, in a modern Society also connects this to um, the conception of fraternity, right, or solidarity extended across nations. So he says almost, ex I think, explicitly at one point 
that the foreigner, the alien, right, the, the person who wants to enter a country has a kind of claim out of their need to be capable of entering a country that might be more affluent, right? So he's making a connection to of, of the issue of property to his conception of fraternity that actually implies also certain ways of thinking about immigration um, as well. So it's a very, at that point, it's a very complicated argument, um, but it's a powerful argument uh, against certain tendencies that, you know, in the way we Americans think about our own property, perhaps, and, and our relationships with people outside of our borders. Right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think we tend to think of it. I do think it could be better explained, <laughs> right? Uh, that uh, especially in a society like ours, the uh, it sounds to the untutored ear like a political slogan, like an ideology. And, uh, but that would be to write a different kind of encyclical. I mean, I, I would, I kind of wish he'd wrote a different kind of encyclical where he got down to these things and gave very patiently, like what he did on ecology. Laudato Si, to me, is a really wonderful encyclical because he made the reader hang in for all of those pages while he kept on showing this level of what it means and that level of what it means. And you begin to go, oh, I begin to get it. Whereas at the end of uh, Fratelli on things like property, it's hit and run in a way. Now, he didn't want the encyclical to be any longer either. I mean, I've got it, but I, I would like the slogan stuff to come down and the explanation to come in. Can I make a point real quick, Jen, just to confirm what Russ just said right there? Yeah, really fast, and then we gotta move on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the places people point to a kind of conflict between this and particularly Ram Navarum is in his claim, I think it's in paragraph number 120, where he says the tradition has never claimed the right to private property is sacred and vile and inviolable. And you'll see people say, they'll pull a quote from Ram Navarm that says, you know, the, the right to private property is sacred and inviolable, right? This is, I think, precisely a moment where Russ is right, where you'd love to have seen the Pope spend a little bit of time explaining how what he's saying here is not contradicting what Pope Leo XIII is saying there, because they're not really contradictory substantial claims, right? But the language certainly would lead people to think there's actually a kind of repudiation of Ram the bomb that's happening. Sorry. Okay, maybe <laughs> well, he wants to leave it to the theologians, right? He wants to keep you guys in business. Um, okay, so I wanna, I, I, I wanna move on to the next question because this one's sort of urgent to me personally, and it has to do with um, how radical a critique of nationalism is Pope Francis engaged in here. So Pope Francis in Fratelli Tutti exhorts us to envision, envisage a new humanity that would allow us to aspire to a world that provides land, housing, and work for all. This is the true path of peace, he says, based on a global ethic of solidarity and cooperation in the service of a future shaped by interdependence and shared responsibility in the whole human family. In service of such a peace, the Pope calls for a global, juridical, political and economic order, which can increase and give direction to international cooperation for the development of all peoples in solidarity. Um, I think all of this seems to be in line with his call for us to think of ourselves as 
part of one big human family. Um, but I guess, you know, I, I guess I want to know what we're to make of an international, uh, global and political and economic order. Um, and in particular, I guess I wanna know why is the Pope so confident that we could ever agree about the terms of such a global ethic, given the profound moral and ontological disagreements that divide us today? Um, and in particular, why is he so confident that the church's own views here are likely uh, to be the views guiding such a global order? Who do you wanna take a swipe at that, Jen? just whoever wants to bravely step out. Well, one, one thing that, that I would say about this um, is with regard to the global ethic, there was an IT, an International Theological Commission doctrine, uh, document, which I'm sure Russ knows, um, called In Search of a Global Ethic, right? Um, on the natural law, not too long ago. And, and that document itself asserts many of the same kinds of things that you've just described Pope Francis asserting here. Uh, in this encyclical. The language of a global juridical order is in um, Caritas and Veritate, I believe, right, po uh, um, Russ? It's in, it's in Pope Benedict. It's in um, Pope John Paul, uh, excuse me, John the 23rd. It's, right, it's been there before. So that idea um, is not novel uh, to Francis. And I think, in fact, he's really developing to some extent some of what that ITC document um, itself expressed. Um, I can go on, but I want to give Russ a chance to interject if he wants to add something. Yeah, I, I think the, I would like to stay small for a while, just so that the global doesn't come in like some sort of fist into the discussion. To see, to see what a social relation and a, a fraternal relation really is, and we see them best up close. And then we can move on to see, I mean, if we understand what matrimonial love is and familial affinity in love. And by the way, if we see how the grandeur of a political nation, I mean, Francis wants to say that politics is actually very high-minded and, and is very noble. Well, let's spend some time, you know, uh, uh, seeing the beauty of these things before we skyrocket into these universalisms. Um, I, would, I would like to slow down on that. But, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the problems is here, so far as I'm concerned, is that he just needs a lot, he needs to read more St. Augustine. Pope Francis needs more St. Augustine because, I mean, since when did Christians believe that the human organization of their societies can transcend libido dominandi without conversion. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, the quest to dominate people for the sake of glory or riches or for whatever sake, that, that old, uh, that old tendency of humankind continues to flow back in. So it's one thing to say, normatively, there should be a global order of friendship, properly articulated, right? Properly articulated. But what always screws that up has to be spoken of. 
And it's not just neoliberalism. Uh, in fact, neoliberalism are probably, neoliberals are probably more global than most anyone else. But it's the, the human heart has to be changed. And when it comes to the family, there's a softening of the heart, right? Uh, at least one hopes. The heart is softened more quickly in the family because of the face-to-face and the affinity, you know, that, we, that, that family members have for one another. Uh, but even families, even families need to be converted. And one of my problems with this document is not the global vision. It's the one thing Christianity has to offer on this that no one else will talk about is the conversion that's necessary to make these strides. And he's going light on that one in this encyclical. I know why he's doing it, but a, a word from the Bishop of Rome about conversion of the heart. It's not gonna make the headline. Right. Uh, Joe, I mean, do you agree with Russ? And, and that is to say that Pope Francis needs more of St. Augustine. And do you think that the hesitation to um, make a call for conversion of hearts has to do with perhaps um, a lack of emphasis on our fallenness? Yeah, so everybody needs more St. Augustine, right? So um, there, therefore, so does Pope Francis. For sure, when you read the, when you read the document in full, you, you notice um, a, a kind of absence of a, of a reflection on the, the, the reality of sin and how sin, um, and then as Russ pointed out, um, our salvation through Christ, right, is, uh, you know, our features of any thinking uh, well about politics, even politics as, you know, as love, as Pope Francis describes it, right? So as a theologian, you know, for sure, I, I was hopeful that there would be more of that in here. And, and to the extent that that's lacking, right, you, you, sent, you can see it, you can see places where there are some seams showing, uh, where some of what he's saying, you know, sort of counts against um, other claims he's going to make because he's not sort of thought through this. And, and you wish that the language of sin um, and, you know, the sort of Augustinian reflection on the way the, the ordering of wills in, in the world requires um, certain kinds of political action uh, would have been, you know, kind of more deeply represented in the document. That, but as Russ says, you know, we, we know what we're we know what he's doing. Um, in the, I think we know what he's doing in this document, and I'd even add it's necessary what he's doing. Uh, you know, if we want to see sin in the world, we just look outside, right? Um, and we look outside in this moment in particular, right? And this is partly what he's telling us is that there's a there are dark clouds that have emerged that he writes we did not anticipate. We did not anticipate being where we are, and 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 there's your reality. And he's trying to say there's a different reality that's possible for human beings. Um, and that, that reality um, thinly sketched um, is the one that we get presented here. I will also say, we don't have to be too scared, I think, about the language of global juridic, juridical order and so on. Part of that is already in place, right? Part of that is already, you know, sort of ad hoc being attempted by human beings through international law and the institutions, right, of, you know, the international community. They're, they're, they are themselves broken and limited and defective and so on, um, but, but they are noble 
expressions of what he's reminding us of as a good, a good goal for human beings as they think politically about their entire community. Well, okay. I mean, I, um, I, so I, I guess I want to pick up on one thread here and that sure. is um, the, the, the kind of the, the globalism or the, the global character of, of this fraternity. I mean, something that I noticed is that the Pope emphasizes uh, solidarity um, whereas subsidiarity is only mentioned three times and only discussed in anything like a concrete way in one small section. And just something that stood out to me generally in this encyclical is that there seems to be an obvious tension between the particular and the universal or the local and the global, um, where the local is de-emphasized. Um, and so I guess my question is, look, what role does the particular and the local play in Francis's vision? And in particular, I'm wondering about the importance of, you know, the particular natural family as opposed to this universal global human family. You know, like is the global family modeled somehow in the natural family? Um, is the natural family still like the basic political unit? Like what? Um, I mean, I think there are these tensions here and I'm not sure, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how he's resolving them. Well, you know, there's, there's this passage. I, I can't flip to it right now because I'm having to look at the screen, but and where Pope Francis says, and why won't people at these bigger levels behave like they do in their own families? And I wish he had answered his own question because a family is not the same thing as a municipality, which is not the same thing as a monastery, which is not the same thing, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I actually did a word count on this one because the, the, the use of the word family is very prominent in, in the encyclical. So I found eight uses of the word family that actually referred to a real family. I mean, where the word family means a family. That kind of social organization or that kind of fraternal love. But 27 times the word family is used by metaphorical extension to things that are not families. And I just don't believe you do good social thought that way. Um, Why not? Every now and then you've got to use a metaphor or something like that. And uh, that's a problem. In fact, the fact that the world by and large does not act like a family, may lead, convince us we should go and look at what families do and what that kind of social organization makes it and its role in the world different than right, a peace commission in the Middle East. Yeah. But that's not the turn that was made. I, I, <laughs> I'm sorry, am, am I feeding back? No, that was me. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. So, so, Joe, do you do you have a response? Well, it, I don't know if I have a response to Russ's point about the use of the language. You know, family. I didn't. I didn't. You know, attend as closely to it as he clearly did. Um, I think you're right uh, to notice that this encyclical's emphasis is on. Uh, the larger, right? It's on the more universal, it's on the global. Uh, and it's not emphasizing, uh, you know, in that context, 
family or smaller um, units uh, as well, uh, as maybe as, as much as it should be. I, I think even the language of subsidiarity, I remember when he defines it at one point, I think it's later in the encyclical, um, I, I even found the definition there a little bit, um, let's say uh, perplexing is too strong, right? A little idiosyncratic, let's say, <clears throat> in that it seemed like the whole purpose of subsidiarity was to serve you know, a kind of well-functioning state and not really like, you know, recognizing subsidiarity is really about ultimately the, the good of the human being, right? And human beings in communities. And I just, it, it seemed itself to be in service to a kind of global, um, you know, political unit. Uh, and so, so again, it was just a little bit idiosyncratic, let's say, or a consequence of this emphasis that he's trying to make uh, on resisting populisms and resisting tribalism and resisting, you know, kind of fracturing of, of the human family, sorry, I'm gonna use the language for us, the human family um, into, uh, you know, into splinter groups that are, that are divided against each other, you know? So I think it's partly just, the, again, the emphasis and what he's trying to do. Um, we are, you know, fratelli tutti, right? I mean, that's what he's trying to do. Uh, and I mean, that means brothers, right? And um, that's a family. So for sure, it's, it, you know, it probably but, airs on the global side. I think you're, I think. Joe, right Joe, I think you've got your finger right on the problem. That is uh, in section 175. And I'll just read it because it's only three sentences. Many groups and organizations within civil society help to compensate for the shortcomings of the international community, its right, lack right. of coordination in complex situations, its lack of attention to fundamental human rights and to the critical needs of certain groups. Here, we can see a concrete application of the principle of subsidiarity. The problem is it's upside down. Right. This is devolution theory, not subsidiarity. Subsidiarity supposes that there are plural, non-substitutable communities. Family is not the same thing as your philosophy club is not the same thing as the municipality. And that the role of the larger organization is to give subsidium or help to those others. That's right. Uh, and the limit on it is not to destroy their unique service as family, as church, et cetera, et cetera. But what he's doing here is he's praising the lower organizations because they are kind of like outsourced and more efficient uses of the state power. They're doing what the state's not doing, but that's devolution theory, which is completely consistent with the worst aspects of neoliberalism. Subsidiarity becomes devolution theory. Uh, now this is just a mistake. So not to harp on it, but it's a learning moment for how to define, how not to define subsidiarity. Yeah, yeah I agree with Russ. I mean, that is, he read the passage that I was thinking about. Yeah. Um, okay, unfortunately, I have so many follow-up questions, but in fairness to all of those who are viewing us right now and have their own questions, I'm going to switch now to questions uh, from our live audience. So I have a question here from David Albertson, and here's the question. Both panelists suggest that Fratelli Tutti lacks sufficient attention to conversion of the heart. 
Is this not precisely why this encyclical moves away from doctrinal theology and instead invites a hermeneutics of reflective and personal discernment? It gives up footnotes and conceptual distinctions much as um, Gaudete et Exaltete did. Isn't Fratelli Tutti a pastoral intervention that appeals to will before intellect, something quite Augustinian indeed? The question is not posed to anyone in particular. So. I mean, it's a good question. And I think it's at least partially right and can help us try to understand what Francis is doing. Uh, my intervention a few minutes back about not enough Augustine uh, had to do with the issue of grace, to be honest, because uh, there are certain kinds of tasks that are so difficult and human history testifies to the difficulty of them, that to really do something new and transcend pervasive endemic limitations we face all the time requires a new heart and that's by grace. So my intervention uh, was not that there's not enough doctrine here. My intervention was a short-sightedness about what changes that heart. And uh, I think the encyclical doesn't deny the importance of conversion by grace or cooperation with grace, ongoing conversion, but it's, it, it treats it very lightly. Joe, do you want to take a stab at this? Um, not much beyond what Russ just said. I mean, the, the only thing I would add to it is I, I'm always reluctant to um, read encyclicals as pastoral interventions. I think, um, you know, or, or at least pastoral in, a, in the sense that I think the question may um, intend, because I think what it, it does, it, it can do a disservice um, to, uh, to an encyclical uh, in as much as it, it aspires to do something more than simply, you know, we often think of as, you know, a kind of pastoral effort. I, I hear people sometimes appeal to this notion that certain kinds of encyclicals are pastoral, almost always when they don't like some aspect of it or they identify a deficiency in it. So I, I just would be a little bit hesitant um, to use that unless perhaps, it, you know, David and I were, you know, were sitting and talking about what he meant by pastoral at that point. Um, so, I think Russ is more or less right, but I would just add that piece. Okay, so we have another question. This one's from Neil Purcell. Uh, so he asks, if Fratelli Tutti is an urgent call to action, where might we expect to see some signs of the church responding to this call? Um, so like what specifically is, uh, is the call to action for? Yeah, well, look, I mean, the encyclical itself is an act, right? I mean, number one, right? It's an intervention at a moment um, of, you know, great, uh, great authoritativeness. Um, it, the, the Pope uh, has a certain kind of gravitas as a, a spiritual and political figure in the world. Um, and he is rejecting certain ways of seeing things. Um, I think we're all familiar with certain kinds of nationalisms that have recently emerged um, that rightly identify Catholicism as uh, an obstacle to, to themselves, right? And the Pope is reaffirming this idea that 
Uh, nationalism from the perspective of Catholicism is a kind of problem. Um, and th that itself is an act. Um, I find it to be a, a powerful act, a necessary act. Uh, I assume that the church will continue to uh, labor on behalf of decent immigration policy in various parts of the world um, and through her own, you know, uh, through her own people will continue to work on behalf of the poor and immigrants and so on. So um, I, I think that those are just some of the kinds of activities that fit right in with what the Pope is saying and that I anticipate will be animated by pointing to Fratelli Tutti um, as time moves on. Okay, so I, now I have a question from Stuart Clem for Russ. Um, regarding the observation that there is almost no theology or philosophy in this encyclical, would you say that this makes Fratelli Tutti sui generis among all CST documents? Historically, social encyclicals have either relied on natural law reasoning or scriptural reasoning or both. Has Francis created a new category here? And if so, is that a good or a bad thing? Well, if you are, if you're endeavoring through dialogue to exhort people to action, uh, it makes some sense that you are not uh, conducting complicated philosoph uh, philosophical or theological inquiries. It makes sense. I mean, it, it, in the context of an exhortation. Uh, But I find, I find terms that are common to the philosophers and theologians in our tradition uh, don't get the heft that they deserve in this encyclical. Like it, at one point, for example, section 164, charity unites both dimensions, the abstract and the institutional, since it calls for an effective process of historical change that embraces everything, institutions, law, technology, experience, professional expertise, scientific analysis, administrative procedures, and so forth. But uh, the, the, the first meaning of charity in our tradition is what unites God and man, not what, not what creates multifaceted historical change, right? Now, and we can overlook that, but terms of art, that we've been using for even two millennia seem to play second fiddle to a kind of pastoral opportunism here. Uh, that is to get people poised and up and running on uh, the correction of social ills. That's my problem with it. And that, uh, so I'm not disagreeing with the person who asked the question at all, but I'm saying um, a, little bit of this goes, a little bit of this goes a long way. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Joe, to you. So you um, yeah, well, Pope Francis is sui generis, isn't he? Um, he, he's, he does seem to be, uh, interested in, in bending or challenging a lot of um, precedents or paradigms in um, the way 
hopes uh, engage the world. Uh, and as Russ pointed out, um, he's done that sort of overtly in, um, in these encyclicals by not addressing them uh, to anybody. What's going on there? You know, I don't know. Um, but it's possible, as the, uh, the questioner suggests, that he's trying to do something with uh, the encyclical as a medium of papal expression uh, that we're not quite clear about yet. And uh, maybe we'll see that if he you know, produces another encyclical or maybe, you know, maybe it's not as meaningful as it seems, but, it, but it's intentional, right? It's hard, I mean, I can't imagine that it's not intentional and that it doesn't therefore signal something um, is going on here uh, that fits Pope Francis's uh, you know, interest in, in disturbing certain things um, that have been settled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I have a couple of questions here um, that kind of want to apply this in a specifically American or European context. So um, one, qu so one question I have is, how do we reconcile the message of Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan with the saying that charity begins at home? In concrete terms, how do we apply this to the questions faced by the United States and Europe with respect to undocumented migrants? For example, unrestricted immigration by undocumented migrants could lead to lower minimum wage, higher crime rates, higher likelihood of pandemic. You want to take the first swing at that, Russ, or do you want me to? Well, I think to answer that question the way it deserves to be answered is to try to figure out what Francis means by that parable. Because, you know, the, that parable has many different interpretations in the history of our ascetical tradition, moral tradition, and so on and so forth. Uh, as uh, Joseph Ratzinger claimed at great length, the parable is essentially Christological. That is, it's the old Adam thrown by the side of the road who was rescued, who was rescued. And that this is to be understand in uh, Jesus teaching, do what I do, do what I do, which is to bring Lazarus out of the tomb and the old Adam out. There's no Christology in uh, this rendition of the Good Samaritan. So this particular rendition is aiming at a social and ethical, right? That we have to learn how to generously do good for people who aren't our immediate family and neighbors. By the way, that's a legitimate interpretation of the, the parable. It's not the whole thing. Uh, and so, I mean, on, on that ground, uh, yes, we will know a people and not just an individual, but a people by how they treat those who come on their shores and live in their cities and so on and so forth. It's a good interpretation. Yeah, um, Jennifer, I think that the question seems really sympathetic to your concern before, right, about the relationship of the local to universal and how um, many times the Pope seems to be moving from, you know, moving quickly to the global or from the global, perhaps to the family. And, and the questioner is saying, don't we typically move from the experience of family life, family love, to you know, wider communities where we're striving to be more inclusive. And in that move, does any of us really imagine that we would put our family in peril? 
right? You know, um, to, in order to embrace somebody else, right? So the question, you know, as a kind of question about national policy with regard to immigration is saying, are we gonna really, you know, sort of open ourselves um, and make ourselves vulnerable to certain kinds of harms um, in order to welcome people that are outside our community at the expense of um, people who are in our community? And, you know, in some ways, you know, the, the, the real answer to that question is probably not. We're not going to do that. We're probably not going to embrace policies like that. On the other hand, um, I think Francis is saying sometimes you may have to, right? Sometimes the need of the person um, on the side of the road beaten, right, and, and requiring aid, the need of the immigrant, right, um, may be so great that it actually even sort of makes a claim of priority on you, on us, that draws us out of our first instinct to protect the local, to care for the local. So uh, I think it's a great question. Um, and I think it's a tension that the, the questioner is identifying that we've all spoken about. Um, and it's a tension of the universal and the local, which um, is not resolvable. And we can go to Augustine you know, to, to learn why it's not really resolvable in time. Well, but I mean, I guess, <clears throat> I would be dissatisfied, I mean, just you know, speaking as someone who does ethics here, you know, I, I would be dissatisfied at the end of the day, we just threw up our hands and said, well, it's a moral dilemma and you know, all your options are bad. I mean, I think that um, if this encyclical really is a call to action, then we need to have specific principles for thinking through complicated cases where it looks like my, special obligations as an actual mother, right? And sister and aunt or what, I mean, my, my actual very specific obligations to prioritize my own children and to take a special interest in my local community, right? Um, when do those actually give way to these, um, larger obligations, because we need to have some way of reasoning practically when the inevitable conflicts, this problem is not going away with climate change, this problem is only going to become more extreme. And if we talk about being one big global family, we need to think about how the special kinds of loves and obligations of the natural family like relate to that. And so, you know, when I was posing that question about these tensions between the particular and the universal, I, you know, maybe I'll reframe it now. Like, is there some way of deliberating well about this? And I mean, does this encyclical help us in any way actually translate these ideals into actions? That is to say, with respect to the actual decisions that we face. Um, just following up, and, and I'll, I'll let Russ speak too. Um, number one, right, you're, we're talking about practical rationality and exercising prudence. So there's going to be a level of specificity we can't descend to, right, in, in thinking, you know, about this question. Um, but what I said, I think, is true, is that Pope Francis is following our tradition in saying that even familial relationships, while they are good, right, and that they have a certain kind of special uh, character to, to them are, are um, made contingent by charity, 
by by the theological conception of love um, that he's advancing in this document. So you could never say what some people might say, which is charity doesn't merely begin at home. It's exercised only at home, right? Um, we have to leave open the possibility um, because we are Christians and because of the way Christ loves, right? Uh, and the way we understand that love to be expressed, we have to leave open the possibility that sometimes we will have to turn away from our family and serve a person in greater need whose bond to us is less immediate, less obvious, right? Um, less, like, contains less emotional attachment to it. Um, so I think that that becomes an instrument for helping us think about this, as does priorities of goods, you know, conceptions of what kinds of goods are greater than others um, that, that would be sorted through in specific instances. What is this distress of the person in front of me, right? Compared to the distress of my child or my spouse or something. Well, part of practical reasoning on such things is that higher levels of cooperation, municipal, county, state, national, foreign, are meant, among other things, to alleviate having to choose absolutely between these things. So that if, if a family or a small village of families are having to bear every burden of doing good to their neighbor who they really don't know, like the Good Samaritan, be, it'll be very, very difficult to get people on board. But if there is assistance from other levels of, uh, of uh, government and even of uh, private societies, it eases that so that the, the harmful effects on the person that does good are themselves ameliorated. That's one reason we, we should want to be political to begin with. I mean, on, on Aristotle's understanding of being political, if you're stuck in a neighborhood with only your cousins and a few uncles to resolve every difficulty, things can get very bad. And the larger and more differentiated society is crucial to preserving what you have in your neighborhood. But if, if it falls completely on, let's say, the neighborhood of Croatia, I'm just picking a country at random, to bear every burden of mass exodus and exile of peoples around the Mediterranean with no help from adjacent country, countries, then uh, Croatia is really in a pickle. And whatever surfeit of goodwill they have is going to run out very quickly because they see them as themselves as having to bear all of the burden. So this is a good argument for larger organizations and juridical structures and so forth. Yeah, well, I also think, I mean, just to respond to that briefly, I mean, I think it just goes back to my question, you know, how radical a critique of nationalism is this? I mean, does it ultimately come to a critique of the nation state, you know, to having very identifiable borders? Um, or is, is Francis wanting something much more porous? 
Joe. Honestly, I think it's hard to tell. Um, you know, I think there's a reading of this that that where it, where it fits in, um, you know, really well with uh, prior uh, statements of the magisterium, both at the episcopal level and the papal level, about uh, you know um, the goods of borders and the goods of you know political stability internal to nations. He does talk about peoples, right, um, and, and and the good of identifying, um, you know, as being a people. So it's not like he completely dissolves this. On the other hand, um, there are, in those same contexts, he talks about this kind of openness, which I described at the very beginning of our conversation, this openness even of a people to being more porous, to use your term, Jennifer, uh, and, and even sort of... Uh, engaging the possibility that the character of the people itself transforms by its um, embrace of some other population that becomes a part of it. So, you know, my, my inclination would be to read it, you know, as completely consonant with what we see in other contexts uh, from the church on questions of immigration and so on, which don't eradicate the good of borders, you know, and don't eradicate the notion that a kind of political stability is important um, to communities, but are also open um, in ways that some of our own policies in the U.S. are not to greeting immigrants and so on. There is a kind of, you know, that's my inclination, but, but there may be something more radical um, here than that. Uh, I'm not convinced that that's the case, but I could see somebody making a case based on some of what he's saying here. Well, there is one border um, which I have the responsibility of policing, and that is the border of the end of this event. Um, so I want to thank each of you uh, for helping us go deeper into this encyclical. Um, we look forward to some more conversations in, about this encyclical in the future. And of course, this is not the end of our Catholic social thought programming. Um, in December, we will have an event on economics, Catholic social thought, and food insecurity. Uh, before turning to any future events, I, I want to thank as well our co-sponsors, um, the Institute for Human Ecology at Catholic University of America uh, that Joe runs, um, and America Media, a regular co-sponsor of ours. Um, I want to thank uh, each of them for helping to get word out about this event and to ensure the success of this event. Um, events like this, though, wouldn't be possible without the support of our viewers, our friends, and the members of our Founder Society. If you'd like to be a part of this important work, you can learn more at www.lumenchristi.org. Um, and have a wonderful evening, and we'll see you again soon.